This Restorative Justice Life is a production of Amplify RJ. Follow us on all social media platforms at Amplify RJ. Sign up for our email list and check out our website at AmplifyRJ.com to stay up to date on everything we have going on. Make sure you're subscribed to this feed on whatever platform you're listening on right now so you don't miss an episode. And finally, we'd love it if you left us a rating and review. It really helps us literally amplify this work. Thanks for listening. Enjoy the episode. Welcome to This Restorative Justice Life, the podcast that explores how the philosophy, practices, and values of restorative justice apply to our everyday lives. I'm your host, David Ryan Barcega Castro Harris, all five names for the ancestors, and I'm the founder of Amplify RJ. On this podcast, I talk with RJ practitioners, circle keepers, and others doing this work about how this way of being has impacted their lives. I've never really been a holiday person, but I really appreciate the song playing in the background right now. It's called Happy Holidays, if that's what you're into. It's the latest single by the band Westerly. Enjoy it in the background during the intro, and I'll play the full track at the end of the episode. You can find more about Westerly the band on your music streaming services and on social media. This is the last episode of This Restorative Justice Life for 2020. So before we get into the show today, I wanted to take a moment to reflect on this year. 2020 has been really difficult, but I'm also filled with a lot of hope. We all experience additional stress because of COVID, the election, and the reignited fight for racial justice in this country. When I first posted on the Amplify RJ Instagram account in early March, I didn't know that the country was about to shut down. And I definitely didn't know that in that time, we'd grow such an amazing community of people eager to embody restorative justice philosophy, practices, and values. I'm blown away that there are over 10,000 people following us on social media, but I'm more excited about the over 1,700 of you who have invested time and money to learn more about this work with us, even in virtual space. So from the bottom of my heart, thank you, thank you, thank you for your continued support. I can't wait to share all the things we'll be doing next year, so make sure you're subscribed to this feed so you don't miss an episode when we come back with a very special episode on January 6th. And make sure you're signed up for our email list to make sure you get all the Amplify RJ updates. With that being said, I'm really excited to be closing out the year with today's guest. Annie Booth is one of the wonderful people from my restorative justice community in Chicago. She's currently working to bring restorative justice practices into her work with the Center for Negotiation and Mediation at Northwestern Law School, but she's taken a long, winding journey to get there. Enjoy our conversation. Welcome, Annie. Who are you? I'm thinking a lot about being a sister. I'm a daughter, auntie, godmother. Who are you? I am, I'm not going to say restorative justice practitioner. I'm going to say I'm a restorative justice advocate. I'm somebody who believes in people, community, connection at the end of the day. Who are you? I am a Korean American woman who is a Chicagoan. Uh, I am an adoptee. Um, I'm an attorney mediator. Um, I am a lifelong learner and student. Who are you? I am somebody who is beautifully broken, who is 
on a journey of reconnection. I'm somebody who struggles. I'm somebody who celebrates. Um, and I'm on a path of accepting myself and others. Who are you? I am a connector. Um, I move between a lot of different worlds. Who are you? I'm me. I'm a human. I, I am. And something that I'm embracing in this moment is that that is enough. And I don't know if that was the seventh one or if we're going to do one more. So we'll do one more just for safety. Finally, who are you? I'm both teacher and student. I'm a searcher. I'm a seeker. Um, and I hope that I am someone who is able to walk in their power and find their purpose. Thank you. Um, we're going to touch on hopefully a lot of those things as we continue to uh, spend time together this afternoon. But uh, before we do that, I just want to check in with the fullness of this question, especially at the end of this year. How are you? I'm okay. I'm standing. I have been up, down, all around. Um, in this moment, I'm filled with a lot of gratitude. Um, for the people in my life, for the communities that I'm a part of. And at the same time, I am also caring a lot. It's been a really heavy year. Um, just this week, found out my four-year-old nephew has mm -hmm. COVID. Um, and that's my sister, who's an emergency room doctor. And they have just gone through so much. My other nephew had it. And um, I think there are many people who I care deeply about who have been struggling over this past year for so many reasons. Yeah, from the racial uprising to the COVID um, to, you know, just life in 2020, um, the, the election, all of those things um, made this year one that is um, not going to be forgotten soon. Uh, this is the last episode that we're airing uh, for uh, 2020. And so, um, I'm so glad that we've got to spend this time together. Um, you and I connected a couple years back when I was still growing a uh, young restorative justice learner, practitioner. Um, and, you know, you struck me as someone who, like you said in your who are you statements, like plays in multiple worlds. Um, what are those worlds that you play in? Well, it's really funny because I think um, at a certain point, if you had asked me, mm -hmm. who am I? I'm Annie Booth. And I'm an attorney. And that would have been the answer. And in fact, um, one of the first times I did that exercise, I remember getting stuck thinking, who, who am I? I? I don't know beyond certain labels and titles. Um, and that is something that I have worked on to really explore in terms of all parts of who I am. Um, so asking about some of the worlds mm -hmm. that I'm in, um, I am part of the Center on Negotiation Mediation at Northwestern Pritzker School of Law. So that's one of the hats I wear, and that's a community that I'm a part of. Um, I'm also part of different communities throughout Chicago. Uh, so for instance, last night, um, I was in a really beautiful circle with um, 
the women of color group at Circles and Ciphers, uh, which is um, a wonderful group in Chicago, part of the restorative justice hubs. Um, and I really have the privilege to work with many people throughout Chicago. Um, and that's something that I'm just grateful for. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you got your start, um, your introduction to restorative justice, quote unquote, right, was kind of through the legal system, but you've probably been doing this work in some way, shape or form, even before you know those words. So in your, uh, from your perspective, how did you get started in this work? So who am I? I'm a middle child <laughs> and I have three siblings. And I'll just say that um, for a couple of my siblings, um, growing up was really challenging. Um, and so we, we lived out restorative justice in that I saw with some of my siblings um, when they were dealing with some hard stuff, uh, when they were getting into some trouble, it was how do we come around to support them? You know, so seeing, you know, parents meet with a teacher and principal and chief of police and others to say, you know, how can we help in terms of provide support, but also for you to take um, responsibility and to be held accountable for your actions um, and just how do we live with compassionate accountability and love? Um, so I, I think I got to experience that growing up and um, something else too that stands out to me that was a lesson in restorative justice, even though I didn't realize it at the time. Mm -hmm. um, in my family, and we, we have a big age gap too, so we cover a lot of years, um, but my parents always were very intentional about welcoming people into our family. Um, so for instance, um, I used to spend a lot of time in middle school and high school at a community center. And um, there was a man there that I became friends with who really had no community, no family. And I remember there were some holidays where he got invited over to our home. Um, and I think for me, that was my parents really modeling. How do you welcome people? How do you um, create community? And that was, I think, an early lesson for me. And I had no clue that that was, you know, part of restorative justice. Yeah, absolutely. Like you, in those two experiences, you summed up a lot of what this work is, right? Um, when we have somebody who causes harm in our family, in our community, right? We're not throwing them away. We're trying to figure out how to work it out so we can all move forward together. And that means like getting support from all the stakeholders involved, right? Uh, people at school, people from the family, maybe even people from the police trying to figure out, you know, how can we make this right? Not how can we punish this person, but, you know, support with uh, responsibility, support and accountability, right? Um, and then like the proactive things that we're doing to build relationships with folks, not just in our family, but like widening the circle of who we think family is, making sure that people get their needs, not just like physical needs, but like needs for connection met. Uh, so much of the world's problems can be defined by like disconnection from self or others. Um, and yeah, you just spelled that out so beautifully. Thank you. Well, and I think an important point too is how we treat people. Um, so that's something else that my parents really modeled was it didn't matter what your title was, um, but they were gonna make time um, to listen and to show respect. And um, later on in life, I realized that's not how everyone operates. It's <laughs> what can you do for me? How important are you? And that's how I'm gonna treat you. Um, and so I think that's something really important to remember as well. 
Yeah, and you live, and, and we live in both worlds, right? The world that we are creating and the world as it is, right? Where there are times where we do have to act in like ways that are more transactional and like how can we bring in that restorative lens of, you know, seeing the humanity in everybody and treating them accordingly, right? Um, you grew up kind of having this set of values ingrained in you. How did that translate um, as you moved up through school trying to figure out what you wanted to do, ending up in uh, law? Yeah. Um, I, I think I realized that I wanted to serve um, and serve community. And so I was trying to figure out what's the best way to do that. Um, and ultimately, I decided law was um, the way that I would go about doing that. And, and it's interesting because actually my dad is a judge, um, mm -hmm. but I never thought that I was going to follow in his footsteps um, or go to law school. So it's interesting that I did end up there. In Michigan, um, the county level judges, they do criminal as well as civil. So he had family law cases, he had criminal cases. Um, and that's where I learned a lot in terms of how he treated people, right? It didn't matter whether you had a case in front of him, whether you were the prosecutor, whether you um, were the custodian, um, but he was going to treat people with respect, no matter who they were. Yeah, absolutely. And so like, even though you might not have like been directly inspired by like, I want to be just like my dad, you still ended up there. So how did your ideals for serving community bring you to that? Well, let me see. I, actually, I was doing an internship with CGLA. Um, and at the, for those of you who don't know, CGLA is Cabrini Green Legal Aid Clinic, um, although they may have officially changed to CGLA because they are no longer located in Cabrini. Um, when I was interning with them, um, they were actually still at Cabrini. Um, for those people who aren't uh, from Chicago listening to this, can you explain what Cabrini Green is, was? So Cabrini Green was um, a housing project. And what made it unique was its location because it was on um, a very desirable and sought after piece of property. And so because of that, I think often um, it was portrayed in a certain light because of its proximity to, for instance, Gold Coast. Um, in mm -hmm. Chicago, which is a very wealthy neighborhood. And so I think a lot of people saw it might be a matter of time before that housing project is pushed out because of that real estate. Um, yes. Yeah. And so in Cabrini Green Legal Aid uh, was, is an organization that started there serving the people who um, lived uh, in that housing project and like, you know, expanded to serve other folks as well. But that's where it got its start, right? Yes, yes. Okay, cool. And so you were interning there. I, I was interning yeah. there and, um, you know, I was interested in, you know, housing and education and um, community defense work. And so that's when I decided to go to law school. Um, but it's interesting because law school, I think, was a difficult time for me um, and going through that process. And in fact, I think a lot of disconnection happened when I was in law school um, because mm -hmm. of legal education. Yeah, how so? Whether it's direct or indirect messaging, law school tells you that you have to be a certain way. You have to fit a certain mold in order to be an attorney. And mm -hmm. that means disconnecting from your heart and your feelings and other aspects of who you are. Um, 
And that's not the case for all attorneys. Um, mm. But I think that is a very strong message because of what is valued in law school and the legal field. Yeah, I think one of the things I, I lean on the article written by uh, Kenneth Jones and Tima Okun a lot, character six of white supremacy culture. And like one of those things is like literally law school, worship of the written word, right? Like things have to be this way because like this is a lot like who cares about the experiences that you as an attorney or you as a person encountering the legal system for one reason or another are going through like this is the precedent uh, and you have to figure out some other place that it was written like this to argue your case, right? Right, and what's considered professional. Um, so mm -hmm. I have a very powerful memory. In my third year of law school, I was um, doing an externship with the public defender's office. So I was in a felony courtroom at 26 in California, which is a felony uh, criminal courthouse. And I remember watching as a young man who was probably only 19 or 20 years old was receiving a life sentence. And just the weight and the heaviness and the gravity of that moment. And he had family in court, um, probably mom, grandmother. Um, and understandably, they started becoming hysterical. And, you know, bailiff comes out, be quiet, you're going to, you know, need to leave the courtroom and the young man's upset and everyone um, you know, the attorneys and others, the judge who were in there, it was sort of business as usual. And I remember just sitting there with the weight of that and just thinking, wow, is anyone even acknowledging what's happening? This is a young man and, and he's just learning that he is likely going to spend the majority of his life in prison. And that's just normal course of business. And to me, that was so sad and upsetting that there, that there wasn't any acknowledgement of that and there wasn't even space to grieve and it was inappropriate to show any emotion in that situation. Um, and I was thinking, this, this feels wrong. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's really messed up. I think lots of things in there, right? Um, without knowing the details of the harm he caused, right? Um, because we're assuming that there was some harm, right? Um, putting somebody in a box for the next 40, 50, 60 years of their life, not really gonna make that harm right or better, right? Um, we've broken up a family um, and for what? Yeah, all of us should be grieving and should have to face what we're doing in the criminal legal system. Um, and I think one of the problems, too, and this is, you know, one of the problems in law school is that so often instead of a whole person being invited into a space, it's only your physical and mental self. Mm -hmm. There is no recognition of your emotional or spiritual self or any other aspect Um and I think because of that, it, it does create an imbalance. Yeah. Um, you finished law school. You continue to teach. Um, what made you stick it through when like you felt like such agony in that moment? And I'm sure many others. 
I actually have taken a very winding path, David, um, that led me back to the law school. So I actually uh, graduated and I worked in legal aid. Um, and I bet you didn't know this, that I was working in the same building as CJYI and Cheryl and Aura. So for those of you um, who might not know, Cheryl, uh, Cheryl Graves and Aura Shub, um, just incredible women who really um, did so much to advocate for restorative justice in Chicago. Yeah. Cheryl was the first episode of this podcast and Aura passed uh, two and a half years ago. So go back and listen to some of the stories about how Cheryl and Aura got their start on episode one, if you haven't already. Uh, but yeah, uh, you were sharing space with them in that office. Well, I, not, I mean, it was a very big building. So, sure. um, oh, it's sharing space with them in the building, in, in the building, not in the office. But then that's the, I think the first time our paths had connected because they came up, we were doing a birthday party um, for Elaine who worked in our office and they had worked with her previously. So that's the first time I met them. Um, but I was working in legal aid and after legal aid, um, life happens. Um, and I can actually share more about uh, my decision to leave. Um, but then I actually um, returned to Michigan and I worked with the Michigan Court of Appeals. And then I ended up going overseas and I worked in India um, and helping build capacity on a team of female um, national attorneys there. And then I returned and it was economic downturn and I could not find a public interest job for the life of me. Um, and I ended up working at a law firm uh, in Michigan as well. And that's all before returning to the law school to teach. <laughs> um, didn't know a lot of that. Let's go back into <laughs> to some of those things. Um, you decided to leave uh, legal aid. So when I was working in legal aid, and this was, um, I was in the South Side office, and I was working on housing cases, family law, employment, um, some consumer law cases, really doing a breadth of everything. And I was a brand new attorney and sort of just dumped in. It, it was one of my first year of practice was one of the hardest years of practice um, that I've had. And something that was really meaningful to me was getting into the community. So it was one thing in terms of representing clients and cases, but I remember um, there was a food pantry on State Street and I would stop by and I would provide um, just some legal advice kind of in a drop-in um, day there. And I did some work um, and met with, there was a parent group at the National Teachers Academy um, so getting to know them, and that was really meaningful to me because it was helping me to get a better understanding of the community that I was serving because I was coming mm -hmm. from the outside. Um, mm -hmm. And that to me was really important as I thought about cases. Yeah. Can you explain um, why that was important for you? Like the community that you came from versus the community that you were working in? 
Well, part of it, just recognizing that it was coming from the outside, right? And we're in an office building. And even though we're located in that community, it doesn't necessarily mean you're a part of the community. And the legal aid organization was a big legal aid organization um, and had served, um, you know, neighborhoods throughout Chicago for many years. But to me, it was important to better understand, you know, community connections and what's happening and, um I think it's hard because we had so many cases. Um, this was before there were caseload caps. And so I remember just being completely overwhelmed. Um, wow. And I realized later that I was on this path to being burned out and I wasn't practicing critical reflection and I didn't have my own community to you know, really process things with and wrestle um, about some of the things that I was seeing right um and to have people to hold me accountable and say you know what what about this annie right or have you thought about that um and what was hard is i got burned out and and that's not something that i really wanted to admit right because what i learned in law school was don't deal with emotion just stuff it down and do more work work harder Mm -hmm. work more and so I, i didn't really want to recognize that. Um, But it was hard because at one point I had to look at myself and I remember thinking, I'm just another person that my client has to deal with. Mm. And for example, in public housing cases, I might have to counsel a client. I'm not sure, you know, we can win a trial, but if you agree to this settlement, and bar your son or grandson from the house, you're able to stay. And I was thinking, I'm part of breaking up black and brown families. And that's not to say that legal aid attorneys aren't doing incredible work um, or that we need uh, legal aid attorneys. It was just hard for me at that time being burned out and I didn't have that support to wrestle with those things, to say, how can I be working within this system, um, which is sometimes very problematic? Um, What do I do with that, right? How do I maintain integrity? Um, What can I do? And so because of that, I think I ended up really struggling. And then, you know, um, I made a personal decision to leave, um, you know, and it's, it's funny the way that we can tell our stories and the way that we can frame things, um, because yeah. I can frame it in terms of, I made the decision to leave, to go be with a long distance partner. Um, and I received a lot of affirmation from that, right? Oh, it's about time. Um, that's great. We're so glad um, that you're finally making that move. But if I'm really honest, um, a large part of that story was that I was very burned out. Um, so back to, so when you're in Michigan working with a, a appellate court, right? Um, like, were you running into like the same kind of conflict um, that you experienced uh, working in legal aid? I think what's, well, what was hard uh, working with the appellate court is um, that it's a very individual uh, position and work. Um, mm. And so that was hard for me because um I, I, to me, being in community and having a work community is something really important. Um, And I think what's hard there is you see how the law um, applied isn't always fair. Um, And it 
doesn't always lead to the right outcome, but yet we have to follow the law, right? And so that was something that was um, difficult in that position. Yeah, what's really present for me, just like as you're thinking, as you're talking about this is uh, the execution of, it's Brandon Bernard, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And like, yes, we were upholding legal press, like we, the people of the United States, right? We're upholding legal precedent by this. There are lots of people who have been um, convicted with murder when they were not the people who like actually did the, um, the like act, pull the trigger or or what have you, right? Um, and it doesn't make it right. Yeah, I, I I hope that as a nation that we we reflect on what we're doing. We have to take accountability for it. We are responsible. Brandon was killed and that that is something that is not right either. Um, and that's something that I think we need to face. And, and as a result of a formal legal system, a sanctioned killing. Right, that that falls on us. This is this is a detour that I didn't think we were going on, but like, what do we do in, in instances like that, right? Um, that was Indiana, right? I don't live in a state um, that has the death penalty, right? What do we do? I think one, it's about naming it wherever we are, right? And that's hard because we have the, you know, um, on an individ individual level work that we can do and on a collective level, um, what we can do. But I think one, it's naming it and facing it and making sure that um, we understand that the, ha the harm that we're causing, right? And then taking action and um, using our voices and our voting power um, in order to create change. But I think until we face what we're actually doing um, and naming that harm, we can't begin to repair or create change because we have to address it first. Yeah, I mean, and I think like in a similar way, like um, thinking about the young man who uh, who you had that experience with uh, in your third year of law school, like that's also a death sentence, right? Um, it, it's a different kind of death sentence. Um, but, you know, like that that's what we're doing when we're continuing to rely on the carceral systems to take care of problems in society that don't require that. Absolutely. I think we need to shine a light what happens in prison and the dehumanization of being in prison and the complexity of harm means mm -hmm. that we can be inflicting great harm on people in prison. That doesn't diminish harm that they may have caused to somebody else. Um, so we can hold all of that um, at the same time. And I think that's hard sometimes for people, um, but something really important that we do. Yeah, uh, just to make this really um, accessible to folks um, who aren't like super closely tied into um, the criminal legal work or the criminal legal system, um, what are some resources that people can learn more? Something that comes to mind really immediately are the books by Maya Shenoir, um, um, Locked Down, Locked Out, or Prison by Any Other Name, uh, but you're more in this world than I am. What are some other resources that you can think about? Um, well, I'm happy to share with you um, two links. I work with a really wonderful woman named Monica Cosby, um, who has lived expertise, and she has... Um, 
two videos that are really powerful. Um, and I'm happy to share links um, to those. Uh, we'll make sure that that is in the description. So, you know, you were struggling with like how individual um, and unfair um, and unequal uh, those cases went. Um, and was it like, I can't deal with this? I can't deal with this. I got to go eat, pray, love. I'm kidding. <laughs> but what was well, the decision so that uh, Actually, you... the, the whole, I mean, this is funny, the way that we tell our stories, right? Mm -hmm. um, so actually, I had already applied to go overseas and so was looking for work um, before I left. And so that's how I ended up working with the Michigan Court of Appeals um, and before traveling to India. Um, and that was a really formative experience for me where I learned so much about living and being in community. I was working, um, like I said, with a group of um, female Indian national attorneys. And I was also living in a neighborhood where I got to know a lot of people and spending time in people's homes and um, eating meals and just really building deep relationships. Um, I learned so much about what it is to live in community. Um, I think before that, um, I hadn't really experienced it. You know, so much of my life had been very individualistic. Um, mm. And so that was really beautiful just to, um, you know, have a two hour, three hour meal at somebody's home, um, you know, with their children and parents or to spend time with friends, just hours playing music, sitting, talking, um, and to not feel guilty, right? Like, oh, I need to go do this. I need to go do that. Um, but just learning to be and to live together. It's really hard to burn out when that's your life. Well, and we were dealing with some really intense things. And I think that's what was helpful was to have that community support, right? To cry together, to laugh together. And without that, you know, you see what happens, right? That was me at legal aid by myself, mm -hmm. right? Feeling burned out. Um, but to be in community, you have that support and you're not alone in it, even when you're facing some really hard things because the, um, attorneys were working on trafficking cases. So some very, very heavy and hard cases and stories. Like you were talking about, you know, how like in your context, uh, working in the States, right, where your brain and body are brought in just for like your mental and physical aspects, right? Like not attending to like the uh, emotional, spiritual toll that's taking on a person, like doesn't allow you to do that work for very effectively. Um, for any long period of time, if you're like any kind of empathetic, compassionate person. Absolutely. Um, and I think that's why we see so many attorneys who struggle, right? They might struggle with overworking or substance abuse uh, or depression. Yeah. Like not feeling okay enough to admit or reach out for help admit that they need help or reach out for help right um was that were, were there like intentional things talked about around that with uh the women that you were working with in india definitely i i mean i think part of it was making sure that there was actually time to talk 
right? There was Mm -hmm. time to share about what we were struggling with, what they were struggling with. Um, And there was balance too, because there was also time to just laugh together and to eat or to drink chai. Uh, And so I think balance is something that's really important as well. Yeah, it's something about like, a lot of times people do like, oh, we do the relationship building, the icebreakers, the self-care in order for us to do the work. But like, it's really that all of that stuff is the work um, and we need to like prioritize it like within, um, you know, the cultures that we're building around ourselves, right? Uh, Whether you are the leader of an organization or, you know, somebody who's like building routines in for yourself. That's something that I'm struggling with, admittedly, (laughs) building in uh, those routines for myself as like somebody who now works for themselves. Um, but yeah, it's so important. Um, are there any other like lessons that really stand out to you from your time in India? Well, just to follow up with what you said, it's not a means to an end. Um, Mm. and something that I've reflected on this semester as well. And even in talking with students, we can't just get lip service to those things. We also have to provide the structural support for it. So as your own boss, um, how are you building that into your schedule? Right. Um, and so it's a, for me, that's something equally important to think about, not just say, this is a priority, but what do we do to actually support it being a priority? Yeah, right. Um, in an organization or in your life, it's like, where are you putting your time and resources, right? Um, because, you know, <laughs> uh, time is like one of our most precious resources and we don't get it back, right? We only have 24 hours in a day, just like everybody else. Um, We can get a lot of work done um, if we go for 20 straight hours. But what time does that leave you for, you know, the rest of who you are as a person? And what impact is that going to have on your community? And I'm not saying that there isn't time and space to grind uh, when you need to, you know, just get the thing done. But that can't be a, a habitual thing. Well, and the very funny thing is that when I learned about restorative justice, I was actually working at the law firm as a litigator. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So all of those other things that I've done where I think I was really learning about restorative justice, um, I wasn't actually formally introduced to that term. um, And it wasn't until I was actually in that private sector working at a firm, which is sort of ironic. Yeah. Uh, and that was after India? That was after India. Um, I was working at a firm. And for me, while I was there, um, I wanted to get involved in community and in service. Um, and so I actually connected with a restorative justice group and an attorney I knew who was doing some really interesting things um, as far as collaborations with the public school system. Um, and that's where I formally learned about restorative justice. And it was like a light bulb went off and I I realized, oh, this just gives me language. This just gives me a framework to think about what I already believed in, in terms of community, connection, um, inclusion. And so that really, it really resonated with me. Who introduced you to restorative justice? Who Who was the person? Tell me the story. So I was actually reaching out to people I knew um, in Michigan um, 
And so meeting with some various um, attorneys in the area, and there's a man named David Legrand, um, and he has a really interesting story as well. Um, so at one point he was a prosecutor, then he worked at a firm, and then he opened up his own defense firm. Um, but like I said, he had been doing some really interesting work with uh, public school system, um, as well as some of the courts around restorative justice. Um, and so I connected with him and there was a group and that's where I got introduced to the formal concept of restorative justice. For me, a lot of the times when I talk to folks, especially who work in the law, um, restorative justice is framed as like this thing that we do to repair harm instead of punish. But you've talked about all these experiences in your life that bring in a much more holistic picture of restorative justice. So when it was introduced to you um, in that setting, what was it framed as? So I first learned about it in the school system, but um, David had given me Changing Lenses by Howard Zare. Uh, and so that's when, you know, I started reading more about restorative justice. And so it's interesting because I think you're right in that in a lot of legal settings, there is a, sometimes a narrow approach taken to restorative justice where it's seen as you know, means to a diversion program or confined to the criminal legal system. Um, and that that's very different than the perspective that I take um, and our approach to restorative justice at Northwestern. And so like taking that like more holistic approach, uh, you went from a private setting. Now we're at Northwestern. Is that where we're at? Came back to Northwestern. Just took me a while there to get go. there. A very winding path. I, I hold um, what I do and where I am loosely. So now you're at the Northwestern Center for Negotiation and Mediation. How do you apply restorative justice work to uh, the things that you teach and the way that you uh, move with your colleagues? That's a great question. Um, since I've been at Northwestern, um, we've worked on um, building out restorative justice uh, at the law school, um, as well as working on developing connections within the Chicagoland community. Um, so there are a number of different facets to the work that I've been doing. From the very beginning, it was really important for us to hold the mirror up to ourselves. So mm -hmm. instead of just searching for communities where we could jump in and do restorative justice work, we wanted to say, what about our own community? Um, how are we coming together? What does restorative justice look like at Northwestern Law? Right. And so one thing that I did, um, it's probably about five years ago now, I was working with students and we developed a law school community group called Northwestern Circles. And it's for mm -hmm. students and staff and come together every other week. And it's a space where we can break bread together. I mean, right now, virtual. <laughs> um, but just to gather and be and sit in circle and sometimes, um, you know, there might be something that we discuss that's going on in the world or in our own community. Sometimes it might just be uh, checking in with each other, um, but a way to proactively develop and build community in an environment that's often isolating and very competitive. And so for people who come, it's that chance to set down your load, <laughs> to take off your mask, 
to just breathe for a moment and be and recognize that there are many other people who are feeling the same as you are. Right. And like be acknowledged for like, not just your uh, mental ability, your, your physical performance in, um, you know, the grades that you get or in your classes, like the the emotional, spiritual journey that you're all experiencing as well, whether you acknowledge it or not, right? Absolutely. Um, and so because of that work, um, it has really influenced the way that we teach about restorative justice. Um, and to me, it's really important to focus on um, building community and relationships as part of restorative justice work and seeing it more holistically. Uh, restorative justice is not just for clients for mm. victims, for offenders, for those people. It's for all of us. And I think that when we embrace that approach, it really shifts how we even see the work that we're doing. It's not that we're the helper who swoops in to save the day, um, but instead we are, we are in relationship. Our stories are connected. Um, and what does that mean then to advocate with somebody on behalf of somebody? Right. I'm really reminded of the quote by um, Aboriginal uh, activists. I was like, you know, if you've come here to help me, uh, you're wasting your time. But if you've come here because you know that your liberation is tied up with mine, like then we can work together. Right. If that doesn't sum up restorative justice work, I don't know what does. Uh, but how does that functionally look uh, as somebody who is practicing law and teaching about the law? Say more a little. Say more about that. Yeah. Uh, how do you embody that like in a client relationship? I mean, that is something difficult to do um, because of the way that our system is set up. Um, and part of that, I think, is a preparation to say, how am I approaching this relationship? Right? Mm -hmm. Am I taking the time to understand who my client is in context of their community? Often we focus on an individual and only the individual, but mm -hmm. we are interconnected. And so it's important to understand your client's relationship to others, to neighborhoods, to schools, to, um, you know, different parts of their community, and to see who they are in a greater context, and to understand their story in a greater context. Um, I think what the challenge is within the system, whether it's a criminal legal system or civil legal system, is there's so many constraints um, within the legal process in terms of whose voice is heard, uh, in terms of who has autonomy and decision making and in what ways. And so I think at starting with your relationship with your client is one approach and then figuring out um, really how to work with them within a limiting system. Mm. Yeah. And the system has so many limits, right? Um, like, I think, you know, the way that the system is built is for you to be that savior, right? Or play that savior role, right? Um, and like, you know, I think in, and I, in one version of an ideal world, right? Um, we're coming and saying like, hey, there's this harm that's happened. And like, let's come together with all the people who were impacted. And, you know, maybe I, as someone who like understands like the intricacies of the law, but also like wants to have a conversation with the people who are impacted and like what would be right for them. Uh, let's, let's have this conversation, right? Um, 
which is in a lot of ways like mediation, <laughs> right? Um, not always possible. Um, but what are the ways that like you see pathways forward? Well, and I think it starts with legal education, right? So um, while people are developing their legal skills, uh, teaching them about restorative justice, um, because I think ultimately that can help change the system depending on, you know, who's in positions of power later. Uh, One of my favorite stories is in a restorative justice class, we were meeting with um, some really incredible men who were in the Roseland community, who I have been doing some work with. Uh, and so students, it, it, this is the far south side of Chicago. And so for students, it took them about, it was rush hour, so <laughs> over an hour to get there. Um, and I think there was a lot of learning and just traveling to a different neighborhood. So often we ask people to come to our own offices, right? Or come to the law school right. and we don't go anywhere else. What is that like, right? What is it like to go to a neighborhood um, that you're not familiar with, where you stand out, where you're not sure what's going on, right? Um, but when we're meeting with a group, um, Gerald G, the mentor, at, was asking students, um, you know, well, why are you in law school? And they're going around and sharing. And, and one of my students said, you know, I'm going to be a public defender. I think she was really proud of that. And, you know, in the law school context, often um, recognized for her desire to um, enter into public service, right? Mm-hmm. He looks at her and he said, I hate public defenders. And it was just such a powerful moment. And they were able to unpack why and to talk about it and have a real conversation about it. Um, And I think that was really eye-opening. And then it was wonderful because at the end of the semester, they actually um, met again and they were able to um, work together on a final project. And to have a moment like that, I think, was really impactful because it shifted that student's perspective, right? She hadn't walked in his shoes and didn't understand, right? And hadn't been a part of that community. And she was going to become a public defender. And so to have that as part of her learning and journey, I think was really important. Do you remember his reasoning for hating public defenders? There's a lot of reasons. I mean, I think part of it is our system, right? And the way that it's Mm -hmm. set up. And it feels like um, sometimes it's just plea deals, right? Are you actually fighting for somebody? Do you actually acknowledge or hear somebody? And the way the system's set up, it can sometimes feel like you don't actually have an advocate. Now, that's definitely not true. But there's also a divide in terms of sometimes communities um, where clients are coming from and, you know, the attorneys who are public defenders. Um, And so, you know, there's definitely history there sometimes depending on cities and things like that. And um, yeah, he had an experience with the public defender where he felt like his attorney didn't do anything for him, you know, phoned it in, didn't actually, you know, fight or argue for him. And that may not have been the case either. It may have been just sort of the limits of the system, but it's hard when you have lots of cases and, you know, a client is just a case, right? Right. 
uh, I, I guess that leads to the question, how do you uh, imagine a more just legal system? I hope that we can reach a place where there is more justice. And I think something that is critical for that to happen is a shift in power. So we have to be willing to share power and for communities to take care of themselves, right? And to have the support in doing so. And so I think within sort of the systems that are functioning, the question is how much of that has to be dismantled for there to be justice, um, to provide options where people might be able to engage in a process that is really tailored to their situation and needs, right? And to make sure that they have the resources and support to take accountability, to be responsible, to change. Um, And so not only will there have to be a shift in power, but there's also going to have to be funding and resources and support to go along with that. I want to get like, ask like a really tactical logistical question. Like at you're saying like shifts of power, like, and so like, when I hear that, I think about like being hyper local, right? Most, uh, a lot of, uh, what happens in the legal system happens at a county level. Um, and of course like state and federal, but like, are you talking about like even smaller than that? Mm-hmm. I, I think it was shifts in power. And one, I think this is a great question because look, I'm not able to give you a, you know, formula, right, you know, and part of, of it, I think would depend on, you know, the county, the city that you're in. And I don't think we spend enough time dreaming about what we want to see, right? So often mm-hmm. the time is wrong spotting and we need to dismantle certain systems and that's important, but it's equally important to dream of what we want to see. Mm-hmm. Right. What do you dream of? Um, exactly. And so I, I think it's so easy to just wrong spot, but it does need to look um, like making sure local communities and even if that's hyper local, right, in terms of neighborhoods, um, that they have power and that when we think about harm, we're not thinking about just in terms of laws that are broken too. And that's a, you know, Mm -hmm. much, much bigger shift. But I I think that's, it's important for us to recognize that laws have been used to oppress and marginalize communities of color historically. And that's something that we have to acknowledge um, and tell the truth about and figure out, you know, how are we going to repair that harm? Right. Like, um, how, how can you have a restorative process with the system that has done the harm? Right. Um, and, and the other thing that really comes to mind, uh, and I can't believe that I don't think I've said this on the podcast yet, but like Miriam Kaba talks about, um, you know, we have surrendered our power because like we already have the power, but we surrender it to the state to solve for us all the time. And it's easier that way. Um, and you and I, uh, Annie and David, um, are convenienced by that, um, and a lot of people are harmed by that, right? Um, and how do we reckon with that? Like, you know, we can talk about things as big as like the death of uh, Brenda Bernard, but like there are smaller things that are causing harm in our community that like you and I, you know, are able to ignore, right? Or able to like not engage with. Um, like how, yeah, how do we take that power back is like 
I, I mean, I think part of part of that for me is like educating people about like restorative justice and like this relationship building thing and like acknowledging that it's generations long work and it's not going to change overnight after, you know, hundreds of years of colonization and white supremacy on this continent. But like, man, I'm just glad to be having this conversation. And part of it is the work of liberation and unlearning, too, mm-hmm. because we've come to believe justice is a long prison sentence. Right. We've come to believe justice is somebody else imposing it. And so that's where we need to be, you know, liberated from those ideas. Right. Um, to see what what does true justice look like? Yeah. And I think it's so dependent on, like, the individual needs of a situation. And, you know, when we're thinking about I, I, I think it's easy to it's easier to have micro conversations is it even worth spending time asking about the macro conversations about like us um imperialism and racism and like all this because like you know like even like if we look at a model of like south africa truth and reconciliation there was truth uh there's not a, there wasn't a ton of like repair that happened there's still a gross inequity uh between um like if you just simply look at like the racial wealth gap in south africa right that's still there um to name like one facet right like where has this worked on a large scale? I think something that's really hard is to hold both the macro and the micro, right? Mm-hmm. And I know that's something that I struggle with. Um, and what's hard is they are deeply interconnected as well. But that's something that I've seen within kind of restorative justice field or movement, whatever you want to call it, right, is how, to, how do we deal with, you know, historical harms, and individual harms, mm-hmm. right, at the same time. Um, and I think that is a much larger uh, question. And so I, you know, am not able to give you a nice, neat answer there. And that's something that I think that we should be talking about uh, and wrestling with in terms of large scale. What does that look like? Especially, you know, even when we see on a local level, things start to scale up. What are the implications of that? Are we doing it intentionally? Um, What could it look like, you know, on a statewide level, on a national level? Um, And there's so many issues that that raises that I think sometimes it just feels overwhelming, um, you know, and so we don't always engage in that. Right. I think about like on like a statewide level, like restorative justice, restorative practices were mandated to be practiced in all Illinois schools, right? How did that go? Like, at least there's the option, like, so maybe that's net positive, but like the way that it was rolled out in so many places caused a lot of harm and left restorative justice, like having a bad taste in a lot of people's mouths because it was seen as permissive um, when it's not, it's about, you know, building community and then like, you know, holding community accountable. And like when the resources aren't there to do those things, it's just like, What did you expect to happen? Well, and you look on a national level, you know, who has power and who is making certain decisions, right? And I think Mm -hmm. part of it is remembering that we all have power and also focusing on making sure that people who are in um, decision-making positions understand restorative justice, um, have that background as well so that they can be very intentional about policy and laws um, so that we're not dealing with a lot of unintended or collateral consequences. 
to bring it back to like locally, right? The work that you're doing in uh, your law school is one, giving your students the education about what this work is, trying to model it by providing these spaces, time uh, and resources to embody some of those things. Um, you're also doing this work in community uh, with Circles and Ciphers. What does that look like? I feel really um, honored and grateful that I'm able to work with other communities as well. Um, so mm -hmm. being able to support um, and walk alongside uh, groups. Um, so for instance, I get to be in relationship with a lot of the youth leaders at Circles and Ciphers, um, part of the women of color group. And, you know, what does it mean to live in community together? Um, mm. And to figure that out and figure out, you know, what happens when, you know, within community, we experience harm. It's not a nice, easy, you know, answer in a restorative justice book that says, you know, one person harms somebody else, you take responsibility, we have one circle and that's it, right? Ask these <laughs> questions and like, yay, we did it. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. It's, it's, you know, based on, you know, what's happening in life and where people are, how do we really come together? Um, and so, you know, I... I'm just really deeply appreciative of the relationships I have with people there because I learned so much. Um, and to be part of a family that, um, you know, gets to hold each other up um, is, is something really special to me. Sorry. Can you explain what Circles and Cyphers is for those that don't know? So Circles and Ciphers is a youth-led restorative justice group um, that focuses on um, restorative justice and hip hop and um, providing support and space for young people who've been impacted by violence. Gotcha. And um, based in the Rogers Park neighborhood, kind of, because now it doesn't really matter. <laughs> yeah, so um, even when it was in Rogers Park, which is north side, um, it, it draws people from all over the city of Chicago. Um, and what I would suggest is I can give you names of folks and there are others who should be the ones to share about this work. Uh, and so you should definitely have them on in the plans and the plans we we talked about one of those people um but um i know that there are others um who can share a lot more about the work uh that uh circles and ciphers has been doing um we come to the place where i have you know this there's supposed to be rapid fire questions sometimes i ask follow-ups and it goes off of t on tangents so you know we'll see where it goes um so <laughs> well it's, it's funny too because this conversation didn't end up where I thought it would go. And that's the beauty of being able to sit down with somebody and share and listen. So thank you, David. Yeah, absolutely. Um, define restorative justice in your own words. Restorative justice is love and respect in action. And that's love and respect for yourself, love and respect for other people, love and respect for the natural world. Mm. What is one place or situation where you wish people really knew this work? We've talked about a couple of them, but what's one place you wish people really knew this? Actually, what's on my heart today is the medical field. 
because I'm thinking of my sister um, mm. and just how she's hurting right now. And with all that's been happening with COVID in our country, that's just on my heart. I, I haven't thought about that a lot before, but um, I, I would say that that's one of my hopes. Yeah. In your imagination, what does that look like? So I think about it in terms of everyone who's involved in the medical fields um, and community and communities of support. So whether that's, you know, doctors like my sister or patients and even bringing the two together, right? I think sometimes that relationship is difficult, um, you know, and there's lots of stories about doctors who don't have bedside manner, but to just create um, com communities. I mean, and you think about where hospitals or medical centers are located, um, but to have a place where people can connect, to come together, to share, um, to address harm, all of it, right? Yeah, as someone who has worked um, in the medical field, I think like one of the barriers, and I think like the barriers in a lot of places is just like, are you gonna dedicate the time to do this? right? Uh, versus, you know, on to the next patient, on to the next patient, because bill, billables and insurance and, and all these things and getting getting stuff done where, you know, the relationships really are the work. Uh, you're the first person who said that. Well, That's and I, I should probably stay in my lane, right? Um, I mean, this, no, it's no. just what's on my heart what's, what's as I think heart, about yeah. my uh, sister. So I, it's what I shared. Yeah, you get to sit in circle with four people dead or alive. Who are they and what do you talk about? Oof, these are great questions, David. Um, there are so many people, right? Mm -hmm. But I guess I would have to say, I would sit in circle with my birth parents and my parents and we would share stories and build relationships. What's a story that you would want to share with your birth parents? The, the one that's like most present right now. I think part of it would be the story of learning to embrace myself, right? Who I've become. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and what that looked like. So there's so many stories, right? There's stories from childhood, there's stories from law school, there's stories right now and, um, and who I want to be and what I've learned along the way. So I think it's, it's not just one. Yeah. Um, with what you've learned, what is one thing that you wish everyone listening to this podcast knew? You are enough. I think if that's something we truly believed about ourselves and others, it'd be transformative. What does that look like in practice for you? For me, I, I think one thing I realized, um, you know, when we unpack the stories we tell ourselves about ourselves, <laughs> you know, and in restorative justice, uh, you know, we often uh, talk about Louise Feldez's uh, poem, You Are My Other Me. Um, mm -hmm. For me, the You Are My Other Me, I had to really embrace and say, if, if I wouldn't treat somebody else that way, I can't treat myself that way. 
right? So it's almost the flip. Um, and so I think it's remembering no matter how we perform that everyone has value, right? So for me, it looks like not beating myself up when something doesn't go the way I want, right? Showing grace. If I would show grace to somebody else, I need to show it to myself. Um, and really just being in that place of acceptance. I mean, this, this has been a really um, hard semester, right? With students who are really struggling with hybrid classrooms, remote learning. Um, but how do we share our struggles with others? And how do we show acceptance for ourselves and others? And, and to me, that's, you know, what it looks like in the day to day. And so, you know, it might change depending on what's happening, but do we make time and space for that? And can we actually, you know, talk about that too? There's no easy way to transition out of that because I want to end on that. Like that, that would be like a perfect thing to end on, but I also don't want um, to let people walk away from this uh, without knowing how people can support you and your work in the ways that you want to be supported. Well, let me flip this. And actually, I should be careful here because how, how popular are you, David? <laughs> uh, there's about 100 people who listen to this every week. Okay. Well, then, if that's the case, then I'm happy to share my email. And what I would say, too, is if people are interested in law school or law to feel free to reach out because it is such a hard experience to go through law school and if I can support people who may be unfamiliar with it or who are thinking about it, um, you know, we need more folks in the law who are thinking about things differently, who are visionaries, who want to change the system, who are willing to dream of something different and to fight for that. Um, and so if I can provide support to those people along the way, I'm happy to do it. Awesome. Well, um, because you brought up the poem and because this is the last episode of this RJ Life for the Year, I thought it would be super appropriate um, to close out our time together uh, reading the poem uh, by Luis Valdez. Um, do you want to take the Spanish and I'll take the English? I will do my you best. Want to flip it? I will do my best. I, 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 can, <laughs> I can take the Spanish. You can do the English one line at a time. Okay. Tu eres mi otro yo. You are my other me. Si te hago daño a ti. If I do harm to you. Me hago daño a mí mismo. I do harm to myself. Si te amo y respeto. If I love and respect you. Me amo y respeto yo. I love and respect myself. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much, Annie, for being with us this afternoon. Uh, thank you all so much for listening, whether this was your first episode or you've listened to all 14 so far. We're really appreciative of everybody being with us on this journey so far. We'll be back with a very special episode uh, on January 6th. I believe that's the Thursday. Um, so until then, take care, have a safe holiday season, and we'll see you in the next year. There's nothing special about the season It's just colder in the evenings And I'm going mad Working 
until my head feels like a lead balloon With the same old carols playing on repeat No, I don't want to wait Christmas, I just want some sleep And an end to this disappointing year So happy holidays if that's what you're into Merry Christmas if that feels right It's the season to be grateful We've almost made it through this hateful Broken bitter excuse for you Drinking too much in the evenings Just trying to fight that feeling Of impending doom but it never seems to ever go away I'm just packing on the pounds Getting older every day Eating store-bought Christmas cookies Just lying here God, I'm tired of this disappointing year So happy holidays If that's what you're into Yeah, Merry Christmas If that Season to be thankful. We've almost made it through this hateful, broken, bitter excuse for you. Like what you heard? Please subscribe, rate, review, and share this podcast on whatever platform you're using right now. It really helps us further amplify this work. You can also support us by following us on our social platforms, signing up for our email list, rocking our new merch, joining our Patreon, or signing up for a workshop. So many options! Links to everything in the show notes and on our website, amplifyrj.com. Thanks so much for listening. We'll talk to you next week.